Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live Saturday mornings from 9 till 10. Find us online at federalnewsnetwork.com or hear us on the radio in the Washington, D.C. area on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, and 1039 FM HD 2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And lots was going on in technology this week. Lots was going on in technology. We had the whole thing with uh, Facebook deleting a bunch of high-profile users. And, of course, people really did not like that. There's something going on out in San Francisco where they're turning parking spaces into co-working spaces. It's a, it's a way to get a cheap desk if you don't mind sitting on the street. Uh, we're looking at a big uh, focus in Congress on tech budgets. What they want to see, the Democrats want to see what the social media companies are doing to protect our privacy and also to keep their activities uh, uh, under control so we don't have terrorist websites going on. Putin wants to set up a, uh, an independent Russian internet. You know, he's going the same way as China, trying to set up, instead of the great Chinese firewall, we'll have the great Russian firewall. Python continues to be a favorite language. Netflix has revealed that almost their entire website is driven by driven by Python programming language. And this right to repair legislation is really picking up steam. Of course, companies do not want you to repair your iPhone yourself. They want you to yeah. go back to an authorized dealer instead of mm-hmm. going to a third party. It's all about the money. It's all about the money because that is a great, great Option And, of course, how are we going to prevent Russian meddling in the 2020 election? This is what people are worried about. But actually, it's not only Russia. A lot of countries are meddling with our, uh, with our elections. And this week, we're going to feature Kevin Systrom. He is the co-founder of Instagram. He, just, he, he left Instagram and uh, Facebook last year, so he's, he's on to a new phase in his life. But it's interesting how he ended up starting Instagram and and these trial and tribulations as he was going through that startup phase. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. And more technology. Yes. We more. have hotkeys this morning. Wow. Things are There's really a letter we have in your mailbox. Wow, that is so good. We got an email from June in Burke. I got a question about ExpressVPN. I noticed that when I install ExpressVPN on my on my iPhone, that my public uh, Wi-Fi is still active. Does that make me vulnerable to anyone on that network in the hotel? Just checking. Is it important if I want to use this as a hotspot? Uh, do not want to put any others at risk. Well, uh, June, if you once you install ExpressVPN, 
any connection you have to the internet is going to be encrypted. So if you if you turn off the pub, if you turn off your Wi-Fi, and you just use cellular connection, VPN, uh, ExpressVPN is going to encrypt that data stream for you on top of the cellular. Then if you decide to connect to the internet with Wi-Fi, no matter what Wi-Fi you have, whether it's encrypted or not encrypted, public or not public, ExpressVPN will also encrypt your data stream on top of that Wi-Fi. So in fact, you are protected. Now, if you want to use your phone as a hotspot, um, as soon as you and you want to connect say your laptop to your phone, uh, what's going to happen will be the Wi-Fi connection on your phone is going to turn off because Wi-Fi is needed to connect to your uh, to your laptop. So you have a Wi-Fi link between your laptop and your phone. And then your phone will connect to the inter internet via cellular. So the ExpressVPN will in fact protect you and your 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 data stream between your phone and the and the internet. On the other hand, the connection between your uh, laptop and your phone will uh, will that connection will not be encrypted by ExpressVPN unless you've installed the ExpressVPN client on your laptop. In which case, you don't need to use it on the iPhone, and you just simply will have an encrypted data stream all the way through from your laptop to the other place. So I tell you, I love ExpressVPN. I use it everywhere I go, especially on travel when you don't can't trust those, those public Wi-Fi networks. We've got an email from David in Chantilly. Dear Doc and Jim, I have a DSL internet connection. That's called digital subscriber loop. That's what they had before we had broadband. Uh, he must be living in an area where they don't have very good uh, telecom access. I want to switch to something better because my download speeds are only about 2 megabits per second. That's the problem with DSL. Uh, and, it, and on a DSL line, if you're too far away from the, the point where the encryption is made, it gets slower and slower and slower. I don't have cable in my area. So my only other option is HughesNet Satellite. Now, they say they've got unlimited data with no hard data limits. Now, what exactly does that mean? David and Chantilly. Well, unlimited data pretty much just means unlimited data. They are never going to cut you off no matter how much data you use. Uh, however, uh, you'll initially get your data at the 25 megabits per second. But as soon as you hit the cap... And the cap could be uh, however, the cap could be 10 megabytes. It could be 25 megabytes. Whatever cap you pay for, uh, it's not a hard cutoff. As soon as you hit the cap, they slow the internet connection down to one to three megabits per second. So it's it's probably good for text messaging, but it's not good enough to watch Netflix. So it will be a little slow in internet connection, probably about the same speed as your DSL, actually, and once you hit the data cap. And it will stay at the slow speed until your, your next billing cycle, and it will kick up again. So I think you're better off with a soft data cap. That way, you can at least get emails and text messages in case you blow your whole data cap on, <laughs> on, on movies. We got an email from Tuk in Chantilly. Dear Tech Talk, is there any way to see all the friend requests that I've sent out that haven't been acted on? In other words, who rejected you? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to send a reminder to these people and nag them until they accept my friend request. Thanks, Tolkien Chantilly. Well, if they ignore or delete your friend request, you'll never know it unless their name shows up in the people you may know section. Now, there's a simple way to view all your outstanding friend requests on one page. Here it is. Simply, But it, you, you have to do it in the full version of Facebook on your, on your computer or your laptop. 
log into your Facebook account, and then click on your name so you go to your timeline page. Then click on the Friends button. Then click on the Find Friends button. And then you can, at that point, you can select something called View Sent Requests. And once you click View Sent Requests, you're going to see all the people you've sent requests to who haven't answered. It could be a sorry day. <laughs> When you look at all your rejects. I mean, Facebook tries to hide the rejects so you don't feel bad. We got an email from Jeannie in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Dear Doc and Jim, someone told me that hiding the Wi-Fi network name on my router will prevent my neighbors from finding it and connecting it to the Internet using my Wi-Fi net. Ah. I live in an apartment building, and I'm pretty sure that some of my neighbors are doing that right now. What do you think about this, Jeannie in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania? Well, the short answer, that does make it difficult for people to find it. Um, they, can't see your, they can't see your network, so they're not going to log into it. Now, every time you, lo you personally log a new device into the network, you'll have to put in the network name. That's called the SSID. So you have to remember your network name. Then once your device has logged into that network. It will remember that network name, and it will automatically log in. In the past, now, so it's uh, so that's okay. However, I don't think that you know providing and hiding your network name is not the best solution to protecting your Wi-Fi connection, uh, because if uh, someone is really hacking you, you can actually figure out how how to get into the network. It doesn't take somebody with a little bit of skill to look for networks that are not being, uh, that are not, um, that where they don't have the SSID broadcast because there are still packets broadcast and they can track it out, they can check it out. And so somebody who's a skill tacker could, could easily get into your network if you didn't have password protection. And that brings me to the real thing, what you have to do is get password protection. So it doesn't matter whether they can see your network or not. So when you want to go to your route, log into your router, uh, you know, <clears throat> go to the router. It could be one, it, you know, the, the, the IP address of the router, the internal IP address, 192.168.1.1, or it could be 192.168.0.1. It's one of those two. Log into your router uh, and then select the strongest encryption method possible. It could be WPA2. Then you change your Wi-Fi password to something that's easy to remember, but, you know, difficult to crack. Then once you change the password and make it secure, nobody's going to get in, in, into your network very easily unless they really invest a lot of time. So I, I don't think it's worth hiding your SSID, actually. It just makes it harder for you to log on a new device. Just secure it with a good password. We got an email from Mike in Florida. Dear Tech Talk, <clears throat> I've got a four-year-old laptop that had Windows 7 on it, and then the hard drive died. I'd like to replace the bad drive and install a different operating system since I don't have the old Windows disks and I don't want to pay all that money. I've been reading a lot about Chromebooks. I've tested a few. I love them. Can I install the Chrome operating system on, on my laptop and use it as a Chromebook? Enjoy the podcast, Ooh. Mike in Florida. That's not a bad idea, yeah. Mike. You know, I've, I've, I've recommended that people can take an old laptop and install Linux on it because Linux is a much lighter operating system than Windows, and you can take an old laptop and bring it to life with Linux. But some people don't want the complexity of installing Linux and getting all the drivers because it is kind of a techie deal. And the Chrome operating system is not a bad idea if you're going to surf the web. Now, of course, you don't store any applications right 
in the Chrome uh, operating system. You store your documents in the cloud. So basically, it won't work unless you have an internet connection. It's basically an internet computer, and all of its power comes from the internet connection. And so a lot of people, though, if, that, if they just surf the web and they're on the internet, the Chrome operating system is, uh, is not a bad option. So what, first thing, you want to get a new hard drive, and you want a hard drive this fast. I'll tell you, solid-state hard drives have really come down in price. You're not going to meet a very big one. Get the, get the smallest solid-state hard drive you can get because you're going to use almost no hard drive space because you don't store any documents on your, on your Chrome device. You could probably get a small solid-state hard drive for as little as $30. So you get that, pop it in your pop it in your uh, laptop, and then there's a version of the Chrome operating system called Cloud Ready. Cloud Ready. And you can just um, just Google it. It's got a very complicated uh, um, URL, but, but if, you, if, you, if you Google Cloud Ready, that's an enhanced version of the Chrome operating system that's optimized to work on a lot of older laptops. It works on a lot of different pieces of hardware, and you want the free version. The paid version is more for businesses if they want to track, they want to keep track and centrally manage all these Chrome devices. They you, you can get a paid version, an enterprise version, but in your case, you want the free version. Then what you do is you go to the free version page on Cloud Ready, and they have it, and they have you download the um, the, the file that will put an installer on your on a USB flash drive. So you simply download it, copy the installer to the USB flash drive, and then you just pop that USB flash drive right in your laptop. And in about five minutes, you'll have a Chrome operating system right on your laptop, and you should be good to go. Excellent. Now, Cloud Ready works fine with just almost all laptops, but there's no guarantee it'll work with yours. So good luck. It's worth a try. We got an email from Chris in Atlanta. Dear Tech Talk. I just sent an email to the wrong email address, and it had some private stuff in it. (laughs) I'm positive that it went to the wrong address because after I sent it, it said, "Would would I like to add this new contact to my to my uh, to my address book?" And I sent it to the same uh, domain as my company. It was somebody's address oh, no. at mycompanyname.com. No, no, no. So I'm certain, you know, I don't think there's anybody at that address, but you we're, never know. We're it's gonna, somebody in the Cheyenne, Wyoming office. Yeah, we're going to possibly gone. I don't want anybody to read this thing. I'm a little bit worried. Chris in Atlanta. Well, Chris, there's really no way to know where it went <laughs> unless, unless somebody calls you up and says they got it. Now, now you may get a bounce. That would be the best if if your email, yeah. if your company email servers are set up to simply bounce emails that were that are undeliverable. That's the best situation because then you know it wasn't delivered. Now some email servers are just configured to silently discard any bounces because they don't want people to try to guess what email addresses are good and which ones are bad. So rather than bounce it. If it's not there, they'll just silently discard it, and then uh, nobody will ever look at it. Now, some some email servers are set up there. Um, they forward uh, uh, bounced emails to a catch-all email address, and then there are people that look through them to see whether there's something that should have been that should have been read and forwarded to the right person. Most companies don't have that. Now, the the worst case for you. 
uh, Chris, is that the email address is valid and it's going to go to somebody and they're going to read it. Uh huh. Now, also remember this, Chris. The system administrator can see all of your email. If they want to read your email, they can go right into your email. They have all the passwords. So if you're on a company server, really, nothing is private. So you ought to use something like Gmail if you really got private stuff to talk about. We got an email from David in Oklahoma. Dear Tech Talk, I'd like to get a job in technology, and I'm told I need experience. How can I get experience if I don't have a job? It seems like the impossible requirement. What's your advice, David, in Oklahoma? This is like a we get this email all the time. This is a common question, especially even for students at Stratford University. They're in technology, and you've got to have they say two to three years experience in order to get a job. And uh, and really, that experience uh, uh, two to three years is something that the HR department has. Actually, what they want you to be able to do is do something useful, and have demonstrated you could do, do something useful. Now. If I've got a, a student at Stratford and they're a technology student and they think they have to have a job to get experience, I'm going to say they don't have much interest in technology. Most guys that I know that are interested in technology, they will set up a Linux server at home. They all set up oh yeah, they, now we talked a Chrome operating system um, laptop at home. They'll set up a, a web server using Apache. They might create a, a data driven a database driven website using uh, using MySQL and PHP, which is a scripting language. They might create a, um, you know, a simple database application using the student version of Oracle. I mean, they're just a wide, wide, wide range of projects they could work on. So people who are truly techies, truly interested in technology, have projects. So I suggest you get some solid projects to work on. And when people say, do you have experience, talk about your projects. Now, the second thing you can do to get experience is you should join user groups. They are the user groups are made up of professionals. They could they've got them, they've got, you know, Windows groups, they've got Oracle groups, they've got PHP groups, whatever. They just got dozens of user groups. And these are professionals that, you know, they meet maybe uh, every other month. Some meet every month. And they talk about trends in their particular discipline. So you go to these user groups. So you pick a user group that's related to a project you're working on, and now you're with professionals. You're networking with professionals. Now, when you go to the user group, don't go there with the idea of asking for a job. Nobody will want to talk to you. Ask for help on your project. Everybody, everybody wants to help some, somebody who's learning something new. And what's going to happen these guys that you're working with as you work on the project are going to say, hey, look at that guy. He's really he's really a go-getter. He doesn't sit around to get done. He, if he doesn't know how to do it, he just jumps in and does it. That's the kind of skill set people like. And you're sort of being – you're sort of in a position where you can demonstrate your technical capacity without actually applying for a job. That's a very good way to network this uh, – network. Now, you also want to read industry magazines. There are a whole bunch of free industry mag magazines. So when you meet these guys at the user group, you can talk about, you know, the next – the big trends, what's coming out in a couple of years. So you, you you know, look like you're plugged into the to the industry. Then I would recommend that you do something called informal interviewing where you just go out and ask for advice from people. You say, I'm thinking of doing this. What's your advice? People – People love to give advice. You know, don't don't burn a lot of their time, you know, 10, 15 minutes. They love to give advice. But if you ask for a job, they hate to talk to you. 
this method of informational interviewing is really outlined quite nicely in the book in the book What Colors Your Parachute by Dick Bowles. And Dick Bowles was using a method that had been developed by John Crystal many, many years ago. John lived in McLean here. And um, and they have this thing about informational interviews that's in a very, very, very effective way to get headway into companies. And so if you do these four things, this whole thing about three years of experience is not going to come up because what you're doing, you are bypassing the HR department and you're talking to the people who actually do the hiring. So the key is to behave like a professional already working in the field, not like somebody who needs a job and needs to get some experience. Listen, best of luck, David, and I hope you get a job of your dreams. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu, and you can watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope device to your app to your device (laughs) following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. You like that, huh? I like that. Are you impressed? You should see over here, it looks like... I am this very is impressed. Keyboard and this rainbow full of colors that and stuff. That is fantastic. And Today we're going to feature Kevin Sistrom. Kevin Sistrom is co-founder of Instagram and uh, was CEO until uh, 2018. That's, of course, Instagram is the photo sharing application that was purchased by Facebook in 2012 for $1 billion. Kevin Sistrom was born 1984 in Holliston, uh, um you know, Holliston, Massachusetts. It's about a town about 20 miles west of Boston. He got his first computer at age 12. But his interest in computers really triggered by the game Doom 2. <laughs> I'm telling you, that is a morbid game. That is a first 
I've never played any of that these is, things. Uh, well, I, I, I you just you know I know you I, know because you're Mister Technology. Well, I I was interested in the graphics, you know, not the violence. <laughs> really? Yes, and so and I'm in a room alone with you. I know it was uh, it, it was interesting because Doom you you would actually you could you actually felt you were walking around and and you and you actually had three dimensional renditions and this was the first game that actually had had realistic uh, with perspective three-dimensional play and it was I mean it was really amazing technology given the fact that in those days the uh, the computers weren't that powerful it was really really efficiently written code so but um, you know but I I would never let my kids play doom because it's it's the kind of thing you don't want to play I think yeah. but it's a great piece of software so he got his interest in computers and he started going in and and editing it, editing the layers uh, of the different uh, uh, different Sorry, kind of. If it's technology, it's That's tech talk fault. radio. Yeah. It. He, there we go. He started trying to go in and and, and modifying Doom so he could get different levels in it, and he just loved it. His first programming languages were QBasic and Visual Basic. That's that's a really good start for programming languages. He graduated from Middlesex uh, School, a private school in Concord, Massachusetts, in 2002. Now, he was accepted into Stanford, and he initially focused on computer programming, but then he got more into, you know, technology management, entrepreneurship. You know, he, he wasn't really a hardcore programmer, but he did, he, did like to, he did like to program. His parents had taken him out, uh, you know, on a vacation to California, you know, before he graduated from high school. He said, I love it out here. I think he went to the beaches. He says, I'm going to school in California. So... So he did. He made it to Stanford. And when he was in when he was in his junior year, he was chosen. He was one of twelve students chosen for the Mayfield Fellows Program for Entrepreneurs. This is a uh, this is where they they take the key people who they think have the ability to start one of these companies, and and they give them the skill set to do that. So as a result of his participation in the Mayfield Mayfield Fellows Program, he got an internship at Odeo. Odeo was a was a company that actually pivoted and they spawned Twitter. So he was working with you know the guys who created Twitter. In 2005, when he was uh, still a junior, and this I guess he'd just gotten out of the Mayfield Fellows program, he was offered a job at Facebook, but he turned it down so he could finish school. He graduated a year later in 2006 with the Bachelor of Science in Management Science and Engineering. See. He got he sort of got out of programming, management science and engineering. He spent two years at Google. He started working on Gmail, Docs, Google Reader, and other products, but then they moved him into development, you know, evaluating other companies. They moved him to sort of a non-development role, kind of a management role. He didn't like that. So after two years, he quit Google and he joined a company called Next Stop. Now this was this is a company started by some ex-Googlers. And it was a location recommendation startup where you, you know, you're at a restaurant and you say, well, what are we going to do now? So you go, you go to the app, next stop, and it randomly picks something and that's your next stop. <laughs> <laughs> what a concept. Yeah. And so uh, it was acquired by by Facebook in 2010. Now, in uh, in 2009, he decided to launch his own company. And it, it was actually a competitor of Foursquare, one, Foursquare, you know, where you do a check-in, you know, you arrive at a business and you check in. Have you ever in. done that? Uh, I, I, I downloaded it once just to see what it was like, and then I deleted it. Here's my thought. 
Nobody cares where I am. <laughs> so. Nobody nobody cares. But what 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 some businesses do, they mm-hmm. if you check in with Foursquare, you get a discount. Oh. That's See, this is how in the dark I am. That's that, that that's the play because the more check-ins they get, it looks like there's a lot of activity ah. there. So 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 you can you can get discounts if you do a check-in with Foursquare. I, I mean, I tried it. It's not my thing, so I deleted yeah. it. Uh it, but, looks, it just looks so, so self-involved when it pops up on social media. Yeah. Now, what he did, he he well, he, and and so he, um, but he wanted to do something that was more than just check-in software, because Foursquare had really taken over the the market. So he says, look, why don't we do check-in software and you can post a picture? So he said it's going to hmm. be it's going to be a hybrid. You know, you check in and you post a picture. And you could post a picture of you eating an ice cream cone. You could post a picture of you, your friends at the table. You could you could post any picture you want when as the time you check in. That was the idea. So we managed to raise half a million dollars in startup funds to launch this idea. This is back when VC money was plentiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he got one of his good friends, Mike Krieger. He was a fellow Stanford grad, but Mike Krieger was a hardcore programmer. Okay, and he said, "I need a hardcore programmer. If we're going to develop something." So they built uh, Bourbon B U R B N. That's the um, that's the uh, check-in software with picture posting, and they built an HTML5, and they set it up to do all kinds of things. You could check into locations, you could make plans, and you'd have future check-ins. So you could you 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 could check in in advance. You could earn points points for hanging out with friends. You could post pictures. It had all kinds of features. And then uh, it really wasn't that popular. And then he remembered his uh, Mayfield Fellows Program. And they said at that Mayfield Fellows Program for entrepreneurs, don't make it too complicated. Yeah. Users don't want a thousand yep. features. Yep. They want something that's simple to use. Mm-hmm. So he said, okay, let's make it simple. So they decided just to focus on the photo sharing part of it and got, get rid of everything else. And they and there was no there was no application out that was just photo sharing. So they started working on that thing and all, and of course that is ultimately what Instagram became, you know, photo sharing. So while he was on vacation with his girlfriend in Mexico, he decided to add some filters to make photos look better. His girlfriend wanted to take these awesome photos where she really looked fantastic <laughs> on the beach and he had a he had an iphone 4 back then it was, it was the best iphone but that's what they had back then and she said you know these pictures just don't really look good enough i want the book fantastic so he started working on filters where you could add these filters and you could take an average look so now she's got mouse ears and whiskers yeah and that's, and, that's fantastic and, right no it didn't it's a re- they, have all, they have all kinds of well they, they probably do have that filter but i don't oh they do have that filter trust yeah, me everybody but, but they have the that. they have the you know the enhanced beauty filter too <laughs> and so of course that would be the one that he would do for his girlfriend so then he um so then he created this filter and then he built the filter into the photo sharing device, which they called Instagram, because you you basically share a device. It's like an instant telegram. So Instagram, and so they, so this photo sharing device, you photo shares, and it makes the photos beautiful, and then you can share them and upload quickly. So the trick is, and why it look why it feels like it's so fast is you take a picture, and then while you're picking the filter, the photo uploads. So when you pick the filter. 
it it applies it to it very quickly, and then and you feel like it's almost uploaded instantly. So this was the basic idea. They simplified it, photo sharing with filters, and they you know they spent uh, they didn't really spend that long developing this stuff. Uh, the, you know they spent probably a few months developing it, and his initial marketing just sent out to email to all of his tech contacts in California. He'd been at Google and had been around, so he had probably a lot of friends out there. And so they, they, they sent them an email contact to let them join, and his friends loved it. Huh. Now, now one of the people who saw it, because he worked at, uh, was Jack Dorsey, who was the founder of Twitter. And, of course, Jack Dorsey was at Odeo when he was there. Jack Dorsey got this Instagram, and he tweeted a, a it, and he said, man, this is the best app anywhere. And as soon as Jack Dorsey tweeted that this was a great app, because Jack Dorsey had a lot of followers, it just took off. Instagram, it took them eight weeks to build the Instagram programs. They started in 2009, and they had 25,000 users in 24 hours. They had 200,000 users in the first week, and they had a million users in less than three months. That's a pretty good build. Yep. In February of 2011, uh, Instagram had 1.75 million users posting, and they, they were posting 290,000 photos a day. Okay, <clears throat> they had to raise some money because if you're going to post 290,000 photos a day, you're going to need some web space. You're going to have to have some bandwidth. So they raised $7 million from Benchmark in 2011. Now, at this point, you know, because he had uh, – um, um, Kevin had 40% of the company. I guess his co-founder had 40%. Maybe the investors had 20%. I don't know how they divide up. But, but Kevin had 40%. So in 2012, Instagram was purchased by Facebook. Remember, it started in 2010, and in 2012 – Instagram had 13 employees, and they sold it to Facebook for $1 billion in two years. And uh, Kevin Systrom's take on that was $400,000. Not too bad for no. a couple years' work, mm -hmm. you know. Now, he stayed. Now, the, the, the sales pitch that Zuckerberg made for him was that he said, look, I'm going to keep Instagram as a separate company. You're going to be CEO. I'm not going to just mix it in with Facebook, because that would ruin it. So Kevin stayed on as CEO of Instagram, which was a you know a subsidiary of Facebook, but not actually integrated into Facebook. He stayed on until 2018, and by September of 2017, they were having they had 800 million monthly users. Hmm. 800 million. Uh, he resigned uh, last year, September 24th, and 2018, as CEO, and, and moved on, but. There you go, Kevin Systrom. He actually stumbled into. You see how he kind of stumbled into a a product that sold, and then he cashed out and made it. Well, made it uh, made a lot of money. He could have. He possibly could have made more money if it had held out. But I think that Facebook would have created a competitor, and he may have lost out. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the big trade. There yeah. you go. Everything you want to know about Kevin Systrom. 
the co-founder of Instagram. Hope you're paying attention because the information just imparted by Dr. Schertz can be turned into a free lunch. Stand by for the pop quiz on Tech Talk Radio, heard every Saturday on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2. Watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell. Jim Ross, featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Yes, thank you, thank you. Please be seated. Please control yourself. They sound much yes. crisper on the new uh, crowd mic that we have. Yes, they here. sound much, much better. Yes, mm-hmm. this is not simply a radio show. It's Classroom of the Airways, and we're going to have a pop quiz to see whether the class has been listening. Yes. Earlier in the show, we talked about uh, Kevin Sistrom. Kevin Sistrom, of course, is CEO and um, co-founder of Instagram, former CEO and co-founder of Instagram that that was purchased by Facebook for $1 billion. Well, when they first created the photo sharing app, they had just photo sharing, and and then something happened. He decided to add filters to filter the photos. What was the motivation? What got him to create filters? So they had a filters built right into Instagram. Hey. If you know the answer to today's question, stop taking pictures of yourself, pick up the phone, and give us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of Playa del Shorts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're busy taking selfies in Canada, call us on the wild card line. 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else, may call us on the international line. 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. 
Yes, let's talk about the idea of the week. Okay. This is really a great idea. Turning a parking place into a crowd, into a co-working space. There's a there's a company in San Francisco called We Park. Now, the project is led by the web developer, Victor Pontus, and he uses a parking place to create a co-working space. Now, Pontus said he got the idea from a Twitter exchange in which GitHub's uh, Devin Zugel pointed out that eight bicycles could fit in one parking spot instead of a car. Then urbanist Annie Fryman responded, suggesting that the metered parking spots could be used for a co-working space. You just put desks there instead of motorcycles. So so Pontus said, hey, that's an interesting idea. So he turned it into reality, and he created a company called WePark. So he'll go to popular real estate areas like Santa Monica's Ocean Avenue, and he'll pay for a day's worth of parking at a parking meter. And then he'll put desks in the parking <laughs> place. <laughs> and and then he'll have a, a Wi-Fi hotspot. And then he charges people two twenty five an hour, two twenty five an hour to use the desk in the parking in the parking place. What he needs is a Keurig hooked up to a car battery, and he can sell coffee out there too. So the first day, 30 people showed up. <laughs> because here's the thing. You've got all these guys, and, and they, they go to these uh, crowd working, co-working places like WeWork. They, <laughs> you, you, you have to pay $50 a day plus a, plus a monthly membership fee. Now you can sit down. you got a desk. you got a computer. you got everything you need there. And it's $2.25 an hour. It's just that you're sitting on the street okay. in, in a parking so place. So what does he pay for? The, is it two twenty five an hour for the spot, or do you know no, what the no, hourly each, rate? No, each 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 seat, each co working seat with the desk and all is two twenty five an hour. Do you know hour. how much he's paying to rent the parking spot for the day? I don't. I don't That's, really know that. This, I, is, I, this is ingenious. I don't know. But you know, if you if you think about it, because cars just sit in that parking. Yeah, I mean, right. it's just unused real estate. And and so he's going to the most expensive real estate area, you know, there. You know, he's right there. He's right there on Santa Monica Ocean Avenue. And so this if you get office space there, boom, it would it would I mean, it would be expensive. Plus, you're in Santa Monica. You got the beach there. It's beautiful. You're sitting outside, you know, probably having a margarita sitting at the desk. It's probably it's probably a great working environment. And get a tan. It's actually, it's actually a pretty neat idea. Maybe he can get some idea. like bistro umbrellas and create like a little canopy out there. Yeah. What so there you idea. go. Idea of the week. We park. That that's crazy. <laughs> I wonder. At some point, somebody's going to mess this up for him, don't you think? I mean, the, the city's going to step the in and city say, "Hey, is you gonna can't do, do that." The city's going to do some kind of zoning deal. Yeah. You know. All right. Guess what? Oh, we got a winner. We have a winner. Yep. We do okay. indeed. Let's go to line number one. This is Lewis calling us from Rockville, Maryland. Good morning, Lewis. How are you? Lewis, are you there? Wait a minute. My fault. Lewis, yeah. are you there? I yes, heard something. I oh, there good. he is. Dr. Right. Ferris, please Earlier ask Earlier in the question. show, we talked about Kevin Systrom, of course, co-founder of Instagram. What inspired him to create photo filters for Instagram? Because he was taking pictures of his girlfriend. Correct. That's close enough. Close Ooh. enough. Close Ooh. enough for handshoes. Yeah. There you go. All right. Hang on, Andrew. Uh, Lewis, we're going to send you back over to Andrew, and he will.
will take your information. It's Saturday morning, and you're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, and 1039 FM HD2. Watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Facebook is trying to deal with this problem of misinformation. Mm-hmm. There, you know, in the last election, 2020 election, there was a lot of misinformation put out there. Now people are saying you've got to sort of check on this. And so it's not clear the way they're doing it is the right way, but I think they're just stumbling along trying to figure out. This last week, they banned a lot of high-profile controversial users. They uh, they banned a number of far-right figures, including Alex Jones, Milo, Milo Yiannopoulos, and Laura Loomer, for violating social media, companies' policies on hate speech, and promoting violence. All these people are, you know, they've got... Some of them have pretty wacky opinions, uh, but and you can sort of see through it if you just look at what they've got. They also blocked the religious leader, Louis Farrakhan, who's known for sharing anti-Semitic views, as well as Paul Nalen, a white nationalist who ran for Congress in 2018, and conspiracy theorist Paul Watson. Now, all of these individuals have wacky theories. So here's where it gets to be kind of dangerous. Is mm-hmm. this censorship or is this protection? And Facebook is trying to figure this out because we we don't want to have uh, speech on the websites that incite violence or you know or lead to terrorism. But on the other hand, controversial views that can be debated sure. might might be it might be healthier just to let some wacko guy say what he's saying. And most people will say that guy's a whack job. Yeah, and and then there'll be comments. This guy doesn't know what he's doing, and so or do you just want to silence them? I think that Facebook doesn't know how to do this, and, mm-hmm. I, and I think they're they're doing too much on the sort of the silencing, and um, 
I, you know, I, this is a tough problem because there are issues with social media that, that, you know, that incites people and we've got to deal with it. So they're trying to do it, something. I, it could be that we, um, I, don't, I don't want the government involved here, but, yeah. it, but there's, there's got to be some way to, uh, to deal with this. So it's a double-edged sword. It's freedom of speech versus controlling propaganda. Where do you come down on the two spectrums? Total freedom of speech or total controlling of propaganda? There's got to be a, a nice mix for that to work. So, and at the same time, the the Dems want to see big tech budgets for curbing extremism. You see, the in Congress, the House Democrats, uh, the House Homeland Security Committee, they want to find out what these companies are doing to curb extremism on their websites. So they... They brought in Facebook, Twitter, Microsoft, and Google, and they want them to submit their budgets for on uh, that what that on uh, their budgets on what they're doing to combat terrorism and extremists on their platform. Now, the committee chair uh, Bernie Thompson pushed for the companies uh, for a briefing in March, after we had that white nationalist terrorist attack at Christchurch, New Zealand, and it was streamed live on Facebook. That was a shocker. The guy. The guy started shooting people, yeah. streamed it live, and they said, what, what are you doing to fix this? And according to the company, according to the committee, no company was able to adequately comply with the committee's requests. Now that lawmakers are pressing for a budget, they want more details, and the social media companies, they, they don't really want to go to Congress and, and reveal what they're doing, how they're filtering it, because they feel like that's, first of all, it's proprietary, and they don't want to get into the budgets, they don't, and they don't want Congress micromanaging them. But this is also part of this issue of free speech versus propaganda. And I think it's a valid social issue. It's a social discourse that we have to have. And I hope we can do it in a way that keeps politics out of it, that we just do something that's best for society so that we can get a good balance. I think that's really important for us to resolve this because social media is going down kind of a bad path. Yeah. If it's not if it's not redirected, it's might might do more harm than good. And as you mentioned, it's, you got to be careful how you do it. That's right, because you don't you don't want it to go into censorship. Because mm-hmm. then then you then you if you censor social media, so there's only one view out there, you you, you can actually you can actually you, you can actually change an election. Exactly. And where are we? We're in Russia. That's right. Putin signs a law. To create an independent Russian inter- internet, you know the Russians don't like the fact that we control the top-level domains in the in the internet. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's all all the all the TLDs, top-level domains. You know, are probably run out of servers out of uh, out of Ashburn. They're all local here. The yep. internet the internet started here in Washington D.C. by DARPA, and um, and sort of the central hub for the internet is right out here at Ashburn. So. Russia didn't really like the fact that the U.S. was controlling the Internet. If you control the top-level domains, you control the Internet, we control the protocol. Well, the protocols are open source. China didn't like it. So China wants to create their own Internet where they have their own Chinese top-level domains, and they could just cut themselves off from the rest of the world, and they could run their own their own network. So uh, Vladimir Putin would like to do that with uh, in China and Russia. So he just signed a new law in Russia that would enable the creation of a national network able to operate separately from the rest of the world. It goes into effect in November. Now, now they say that this will protect Russia from foreign online restrictions by creating what the Kremlin calls a sustainable, secure, and fully functioning local Internet. I mean, they're afraid that if there would be a war, 
we would simply turn off their access to the top-level domains that we control, and then their Internet wouldn't work properly. Right. So they want to have it all self-contained in Russia. The law calls for the creation and monitoring of a of a management center supervised by Russia's telecom agency. The agency would be charged with ensuring the availability of communication services in Russia during extraordinary situations. During national emergencies, it would be empowered to cut off the external exchange, creating a purely Russian web. Now, activists fear the independent Russian Internet would evolve into the creation of a Chinese-style national firewall to monitor and censor content. So the new law comes after Russian lawmakers advanced a package of legislation in March controlling, curtailing Internet freedom. So that's, uh, that's an issue. Uh, you know, we don't want the whole Internet to become balkanized where, you know, you got all these separate Internets that don't talk to each other. It ruins the power of the Internet, the power of sharing. So, um, but they do have a point that they want to protect themselves in the event of a, an extraordinary war. Python. Remember last week I said Python yeah. is the most popular programming language because mm -hmm. it's it it can be widely applied to so many applications. It's like it's like the number two choice for programming language in probably every application. So and so uh, you know it's widely used all over the place. It's easy to learn. It's uh, and it's it, it it's a very nice language and it's uh, it's well it's well written, good compiler, fast and so. And so Netflix is trying to really become attractive to developers. They, they want to attract more developers. So Netflix has been publicizing the fact that their entire ecosystem is written in Python. Python is used for Netflix's security tools, for the recommendation algorithms, as well as its proprietary content distribution network, OpenConnect, which ensures that you're downloading a movie from as close a server as you can. You know, the servers are distributed around the Internet, and you want to download the movie from the closest point. And um, there's Python Software Foundation is having a big conference in, in, a, in a month or so, and Netflix is detailing how it uses open-source language, in particular Python, to develop its technology. This is a play to become attractive to developers. That's what they're after. Mm -hmm. Now, this right to repair... Legislation. I mean, this is interesting. I mean, these these companies they say you can only repair an iPhone at an authorized dealer, and of course, Apple gets a cut at it if it's an Apple or an Android phone. They get a cut at it, and uh, legislation is saying, "Look, this isn't right. You you buy a phone. It's your phone. You you ought to be able to you ought to be able to repair it." Now, how these companies force you to use their authorized dealer? They said if anybody other than an authorized dealer touches your phone, opens it up, the the warranty is void. That's how they control it. And the legislatures are trying to change that, and they're trying to put some controls over that so this whole repair ecosystem isn't controlled by, by the hardware companies. And, uh, and so there's been a lot of uh, work on this. So le legislators in 20 states have been working on some sort of legislation on, on right to repair. This has been fought tooth and nail by guess who? Apple. <laughs> Lexmark makes uh, printers, Verizon, as well as CompTIA and 18 other trade associations associated with big tech companies, as well as the Entertainment Software Association, as well as CTIA. These are all organizations that are supported by big tech. Now, if passed, manufacturers would have to share codes, tools, and supply chain access to anyone who purchased the product. 
So, you know, it takes a special tool to open an iPhone. It takes special products to fix it. So Apple would have to share the tools that they use for opening the iPhones, for repairing the iPhones, all of that that the authorized dealers have access to that have to share with people who bought the phone. But this whole thing is largely about controlling the revenue stream. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's currently holding up. It's one of Apple's biggest financials, that that segment, that repair. And it's more profitable to lock users in to using the manufacturer's official resources. Now, right-to-repair laws would lower costs, uh, lower user costs, increase reuse of phones, which means they and would eliminate uh, premature disposal, which means that there would be a, probably a reduction in sales. So, yeah. so the company's really fighting that tooth and nail. Hey, have you have have you gotten an iPhone 10 yet, or are you thinking about doing it? I know we've talked about this. I'm I'm thinking. I, I'm an upgrade. I've still got my iPhone 6X. So I haven't. Here's the thing. They're almost out with the next version, the iPhone 11. Then you know what's going to happen to the iPhone 10. It's going to be obsolete because it's, the, the price is going to drop. That's the price it. is going to there drop. There you go. I'm waiting for the next iPhone ah. to come out, and then I'm going to buy the 10. Okay. Will the 11 have a headphone jack on it, or will it have the same thing that the, the, the 10 has got? It'll be. There won't be a head, head, headphone jacks are toast. But I like a headphone jack. Well, that you're just living in the past, Jim. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sorry, Jim. You know, just living in the past. Okay, so all right. So how about this? That's so, like that's like saying somebody saying, "Hey, I like a radio over the air radio." I do like it over the air radio. I don't. I don't like streaming. I'll just leave right now if you'd like. <laughs> um, but let me ask you this: the uh, the iPhone eight mm-hmm. is that the same camera as the six? No, no. The camera. If you get a seven, you'll get a substantially better camera. Okay. Between the six and the seven. The 8 and the 7 have almost the same camera. Okay. The big step in camera was between 6 and 7. So compare the 7 and the 10 camera. Yeah. Same thing? No. The, Different. The, big the, difference between the 7 and the 10. Yeah. Because the 10 camera was really designed to have more of this three-dimensional viewing right. so they could do face recognition with it. Does the 7 have a headphone jack? Uh, no. <laughs> what? The 6. You're, you're the stuck. 6 is the last one. Yeah, the 6 is the I'm last one. So. Loud. So you're 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 you wrecked pretty, my whole day. You're pretty much stuck in the past. Well, just just get uh, just get Bluetooth. Oh my goodness! Look at the, the time. Oh my I'm goodness! I'm so sorry, but this listen, is important stuff. I'm telling you. Well, listen, we love your emails. I want you to email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. I also want you to go to the Stratford University website www.stratford.edu. Check out the programs in computer, software engineering, business, accounting, health sciences, culinary arts, hospitality, and tell them you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.